Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to episode 339. Continuing on with our English craftsmen, our English uh, development of woodwork, styles, craftsmanship, etc. So we're going to talk about the last English cabinet maker, Thomas Sheraton. He was the last of the great cabinet making designers of the 18th century. So he was a native of Stockland on Tees in the county of Dorham in the north of England, just south of Scotland. So he left his native town late in life to seek fame and fortune in London, possibly to copy some of those who have come before him. So the streets of the great city may have been paved with gold, but poor Sheridan found the paving blocks much too heavy or too firmly fixed and died in obscurity and poverty. He came in 1790, the year of the French Revolution. Chippendale had been dead for almost 11 years in Hepawite IV. Within two years, that patron saint of the cabinet makers of his day, Robert Adam, was to die also. And within four, the vast Adelphi practice wound up. With strange events happening some 25 miles from the shores of England, with the country shortly to be filled with refugees bringing tales of horror and the fury of the populace, with the guillotine busy with the heads of a king and a queen, to say nothing of aristocracy, old and young, male and female. The time was hardly ripe for a new style of furniture, but maybe it was. There were the mutterings of war throughout Europe, and only seven years before, England had forever lost her American colonies. Sheridan could not have chosen a worse period in which to make his great adventure happen. He'd been prepared for some time to make fine furniture. In his own shop, he had been disposed to seek patronage to ingratiate himself with the wealthy and powerful. This is how most great furniture makers in the last 200 years have had to do, ingratiate themselves. So things might as well have been bad enough, but Sheraton had neither capital nor workshop and he was anything but ingratiating, though. The trade, if it wanted books at all in 1790, demanded new and original designs. Sheridan gave them treaties on perspective, drawings, and the five orders which have been repeatedly displayed over the years, but then again railed against everybody when the books remained on his hands. Thomas Sheridan was a trained cabinet maker with a considerable knowledge of artistic side of his trade, and far more than a workman's acquaintance with drawing and perspective as some who have come before him have achieved great fame. At the time, he was strongly infected with the doctrines and the bigotries of the narrow London Baptist, and even in his own native town, had indulged in writing tracts. And back in London, he continued in much the same way, dividing his efforts between the designing of furniture and teaching of drawing, when he could find pupils, which was seldom, preaching at street corners and writing strong tracts. A division of labor must have mutilated against his chances of success at any time, especially when such shadows as Danton, Robespierre, Marat, and lastly, the little corporal 
were about to darken the filament of Europe for many, many years. Whatever may be said for or against Thomas Chippendale, he was a man who gave undivided attention to his business. And the same may be said of A. Heppelwhite and Company and others. In addition to the fatal drawback of divided energy added to a crabbed temperament, the period when Sheraton came to London was pregnant with events calculated to distract the attention of the nobility and gentry alike from furnishings in their houses. Many were beginning to wonder whether they would have houses of any kind for long, whether they might even lose their heads in the struggle. Sounds like almost like us in America today. How hopeless must have been Sheraton's idea of creating a reputation by his books and his teaching alone. It wasn't going to work. To a man without charm or manner, one who had left youth behind in his native Stockton on Tees, with neither capital or introductions, one seeking the patronage of a society, at all times gay and thoughtless, and now with serious misgivings, failure was inevitable. Sheraton was born in 1750 and was, therefore, in his 40th year when he came to London. His first book, and the one on which his reputation rests, The Cabinet Maker's and Upholster's Drawing Book, was first issued in parts in London in 1791. So there is little doubt that the first edition was in existence, if in incomplete form, before he left his native town. It must have been advanced enough to obtain subscribers in any event. In the list of these, 522 names figure, and I can trace in many of the names the course of Sheraton's pilgrimage from Stockton-on-Tees to London. Circulating by post would have been out of the question to such a man as Sheraton in 1790. The method of <coughs> country transit was by the stagecoach or post-chaise. But Sheraton must have chosen a humbler means, by foot, to have procured his country subscribers. To make matters worse, Sheraton had a wife to accompany him, if not a small daughter, as in 1804. Adam Black, in his memoirs, mentioned both in his description of the Sheraton menage in London. Of the drawing book, three editions were published. The first, <coughs> 1791, contained 110 plates and text. The second, which bears the date of 1793, and therefore overlaps the first one. 119 pages in text. The actual additions and amendments were greater than these numbers appear to imply, as some eliminations were made from the preceding editions. Sheridan found that his public demanded original designs rather than treatises on perspective, and the last two editions he added an appendix in an accompaniment, at the same time curtailing some of the original matter. While we know that Sheraton was a practical mechanic, it is certain that he never was a master man in London. It, it is in doubt that he even worked as a journeyman, so he didn't use the traditional means of getting to where he was at this point, with the one possible exception noted in illustrations, as I will describe. So those who refer to pieces as from Sheraton's own hand, are merely seeking notoriety at the expense of accuracy. 
It is possible that he may have taken orders for furniture to be made to his designs, and under his supervision by others, in much of the same way as Robert Adam did. But we have no reliable evidence of this. Sheraton died in October 1806, and we know that 16 years of his life in London fairly accurately. He was always busy with projects for ambitious publications, when not occupied with teaching or with religion and writing tracts. He issued the Cabinet Directory in 1803, after he had been converted to the English Empire style of Thomas Hope. Perhaps he was forced into this new manner by the uh, extrinsicities of popular demand, and he projected the cabinet maker, upholster, and general artist encyclopedia. The 125 folio numbers, but very little was actually accomplished at that date when he did die. Miss Constance Simon, in her English Furniture Designs of the 18th Century, states that three numbers were issued up to the letters C. A-P, capital C-A-P. In the preparation of this talk, this series of episodes, um, I can honestly say Sheridan had little assistance. For a short time of one Adam Black, a bookseller's apprentice, who afterward founded one of the most famous London publishing houses, Adam and Charles Black, in Soho Square. The simple little sideboard that uh, Sheraton did and still remains in Solo Square, was always regarded as the one of the prob probable examples of Sheraton's own handiwork, which when he was in London, and made as an offering gratitude for perhaps the only friend he possessed in the great unfriendly city of London. So while on this subject of the design books of the later 18th century, it must mention that he must be made of the designs of household furniture of Thomas Shear, a book of only 19 plates published in 1788, the same year as Hepplewhite's Guide, and two years before Sheraton came to London. If Sheraton owned inspiration for his style to anyone, it was to Shear and his book. It is also curious that, in his preface, Sheraton makes no mention of Schieffer yet the latter is actually credited with the compilation of the first edition in 1788 of the cabinet maker's book of prices, an important work at the time, Paramount, which will be noticed later on in another episode. While the styles of Sheraton and Hepplewhite overlapped, inevitably, to say nothing of that of Shear, yet, judging only by the standard of the guide and of the drawing book, it must be conceded that Sheraton was certainly the most original of the two. He may have merely collected the provincial fashions of the trade, in much the same way as Hepplewhite may have done with those of London. But he may have commenced with Shearer's book as a basis. But to the metropolis, especially on the subject of chairs, the drawing book had something new to say. It is doubtful whether Gillow of Lancaster had not said much of the same thing. At an earlier date, in the furniture produced by that firm, but Sheraton was the first to coordinate the style, which we know by his name, and to give it artist, artistic permanence as an illustrated book. 
So it must not be forgotten that a part of the appeal of the new chair-like style may have consisted in the fact that the square-back Sheraton chair was much less expensive to make than the shield-back of Hepplewhite. From the constructional point of view, also the former was superior to the latter. When I remember that the population of England at the close of the 18th century was less than one-sixth of that of today. When I consider that the trade of the maker of furniture was in proportionally few hands, and that the age of mass-produced and mass-production was something of the distant future. So we can easily understand how many or any new design book, if possessing any merit of novelty or other appeal, would permeate the trade thoroughly. Sheraton must have had a considerable following, or his book must have had a fairly large sale to the trade, which is merely another way of stating the same thing. In any event, a considerable amount of furniture was made in the style which we know as Sheraton. In the last decade of the 18th century, even then, the vogue of the English Empire was not thoroughly established until some 15 years had gone by by the 19th. Furniture designs had only begun and would begin on the drawing board. They come to real maturity at the bench. So in considering the work of the three schools of, say, Chippendale, Hepplewhite, and Sheraton, the judgment has been based more on the actual work which was produced than on the published designs of the three. Sheraton's chairs are the most characteristic and the most original of all designs and he trenches very little of the manner of Hepplewhite. He illustrates only two patterns of the shield back, neither of which is particularly, uh, you know, brings great mention here. So it is with the square back that he is the most successful. He borrows from the French in the same way as Hepplewhite does, but from, uh, you know, but he borrows heavily from Louis XVI and he gives the unmistakable English character to his adaptations of French models, as, as they all did, but particularly Sheraton. So his acquaintance with the current French fashions could have been acquired only at second hand. The revolution had actually commenced in the year when Sheraton came to London, and the French king was executed only two years later. At this period, intercourse between England and France must have been the slightest, it is obvious, therefore, that Sheraton could have coordinated only the London fashions of his time. So let's talk Sheraton's style, which is distinctive and must rest on the drawing book. He adopted the English Empire in the Cabinet Dictionary, but can claim no credit for originality in regard to that style, which, for Sheraton's own reputation, is just as well as it had no little to recommend it. The furniture of the Sheraton School differs from that of Hepplewhite in only sub subtle degrees, if at all. It may only be the matter of engraved presentation. With chairs, however, we are on new ground here. In the preface of the drawing book, Sher Sheraton refers to the cabinet maker's book of prices, now a rare book of either editions. And this volume opens a wide field 
of inquiry into the history of the trade. It was in current use in late 1875 when the trade custom was still to pay by the piece instead of by the hour. Every conceivable joint, process, or operation to the furniture maker was described and priced with all imaginable variations and a job was given out without any preliminary estimate estimating by the workman. Priced up in detail afterwards from this book. A workman's cost sheet would be compiled in something like the following fashion. Say for a simple table of mahogany with taper legs with casters, two drawers with handles and locks, and the top line with leather. So let's go some of the details that would have been assumed in this type of commission. A top of deal, which is kind of similar to pine in England, three foot by two feet with tongue and groove joints. And will be extra for 18 inches width and three inches deep, extra for lipping and lining the veneer, <coughs> extra for cross banding veneer, extra for facing edges of mahogany, tongued, etc. Extra for OG molding to facings, four legs, two, two inches by two inches, extra for tapering on two faces, extra for fitting bowl casters to each leg, and extra for drawers with one inch fronts by three eighths inch sides of secondary wood, extra for cock beads to drawers, extra for fitting two brass handles to each, extra for fitting locks to each other, extra for flush escutcheons to each drawer, extra for lining top with leather, extra for tooling and gilding that leather, extra for, for uh, staining and polishing. And it continued on and on and on. That must have been extremely difficult. So nothing was reckoned in that list that I just presented to you. The prices were for labor only. So it must be be obvious that in such a book, no human ingenuity could prevent overlapping and at differing prices, with the result that the man who knew his book, hence the term, could make his account a few shillings more than one who had not studied it to the same extent. It was an indispensable adjunct to the knowledge of the shop foreman of the day that he should know the price book almost by heart. Thomas Sheraton refers to the book only for the design it contains. It is interesting to note that in the edition current at his time, several of the plates are signed Heppelwhite, the name being that of the firm, not of the man himself. Considered at that point a compila compilation of the trade, the names of Shear and Heppelwhite are especially prominent. It was a mastery production to which the best brains of the time would have contributed immensely. It penalized the slow or inefficient workman, which was only just. Combined with the system of apprenticeship in vogue, it must have been a powerful incentive to progress in the trade. In these days of trade unions, this policy has been reversed. The best have been leveled down to the worst, and there is neither reward nor other incentives for efficiency. It is not the first time that equality has been confused with informality. It is curious that while Heppelwhite himself was the maker of furniture and founded a large and influential school, the name of Sheraton has, until 
quite recent years completely overshadowed him. Although the latter made nothing of his London years and his influence of the trade could only have been indirect. 30 years ago, everyone knew Sheraton's style, or thought he did, while the name of Heppelwhite was almost unknown. True, much that was intrinsically in Heppelwhite's manner was dubbed Sheraton. But that does not account for the prominence of one of the insignificant, or is more insignificant to, of the other. In point of date, the, ta the two are almost contemporary. Sheraton closes the history of English furniture, at least that part which is worthy of record. The drawing book rounds off the 18th century, and with the English empire of Sheraton and hope, the Dark Ages were approached of the 19th century. It may have been the new styles are being reborn in the midst today. One thing is certain. Their advent will be remarked only by after posterity has segregated them into definite manners and periods, by giving certain pieces undue prominence and ignoring others. With the trade of the present day, the new manners will be noticed in the gradual and inevitable processes of evolution. It may be that, a century hence, new names will be resurrected from the past on the evidence of the publication of books of designs or mere trade catalogues, original otherwise. Unfortunately, it is possible, if not probable, that genuine creators will be ignored, and the names of one-time purveyors selected is typifying of the new styles. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out. Thanks for listening to uh, Sheraton.